You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman talk today, begin today, to talk about the relationship between the Sinai Covenant and the New Covenant. I've given you some outlines and some information. You're going to have to listen to this message more than once to, I think, take it all in. It is a biblical fact that neither of these two covenants stand on their own. We speak about this every year at our Shavuot, our Feast of Weeks service. But maybe a clearer way to understand the relationship is that they are part of a framework. They are part of a package, so to speak, that cannot be separated. In this framework, Adonai, God established with the Jewish people at Sinai, and it consisted mainly of four things. Number one, covenant, the 613 mitzvot or commandments that given at Sinai. It consisted of priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood in the Levitical order consisted of sacrifice, right? Many and ongoing animal sacrifices day and night. And finally, it consisted of sanctuary, uh, the Mishkan at this point, the tabernacle, and then the Beit Hamikdash, the temple later in history. However, through the prophets, Adonai, God began to prepare our Jewish people for a new framework. based on these four categories, the way I see the Sinai Covenant. He was preparing us for a new covenant. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Those of you listening on the podcast uh, will be familiar with these scriptures in the New King James Version. Normally we teach and preach from the Tree of Life Version or the Complete Jewish uh, Bible, Messianic Versions, but I wanted to get a little more word-for-word translation in here because a lot of Christians listen to these messages online, and these are a little more familiar and a little more word for word, which is important in a study like this. So a new covenant, behold, Jeremiah 31, 31 says, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new, not a renewed, but a new in the Hebrew, new covenant with the house of who? Israel and with the house of Judah. My friends, the new covenant is just as Jewish as the Sinai covenant. As Messianic Jews, we seem to defend ourselves and go back to the Tanakh in order to prove that the new covenant is Jewish. Praise God that the Gentiles have been grafted in, but it is a Jewish covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Why a new covenant? Was something somehow wrong with the one that he had given us earlier at Sinai? No. No. Romans 7.12 says like this, Paul Shaul says, Therefore, the law is what? Kadosh. It is holy. And the commandment is holy and just and good. 
Nothing is wrong with the law. Nothing is wrong with Torah. The problem is that you and I continually break the law because of the sin principle operating within us that the law was made to make us aware of. Shaul goes on in that passage to write, quote, For we know that the law is spiritual. I am carnal, sold under sin. The problem, again, was not with Torah. It was not with the law. It was with us. What was needed was an inward change, a change within our hearts. But this is the covenant, Jeremiah 31 goes on to say, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, there's more prophetic detail in Ezekiel about this marvelous inward work that God was going to do. In chapter 36 of Ezekiel, verse 25, we read, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness, and from all of your idols. I will give you a lev chadash, a new heart, and put a new spirit within you. Not just the law within you, but power from the Spirit to do God's will, to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my ruach, my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. The writer to the book of Hebrews, to the Messianic Jews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, 6, specifically says that the new covenant, quote, is a what? A better covenant, which was established on better promises. We find an example of this in Acts 13 on your sheets. Quote, and by him, everyone who believes, you and I, is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And so by Yeshua, everyone who believes is justified from all things which we could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now that's a head scratcher, but there are things that we have done in our lives that we would not have been forgiven of under the Sinai covenant because we did them. We did them willfully. We did them out of a heart of rebellion. We did them blatantly and high-handedly. Those are the biblical words. Couldn't be forgiven of those. So God was setting up a new covenant. And like the four categories of Sinai covenant that I've enumerated earlier, the Lord not only was giving us a new covenant, he was setting up a new framework for a new priesthood as well. This actually predates the promise of a new covenant in the book of Psalms. Psalm 110 says, The Lord has sworn and he will not relent. You are a Kohen, a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, of Melchizedek. We know that Melchizedek, or Melchizedek, was the king of Shalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, denoting that he is the king of peace. Now, it's interesting that the Messiah as well in the prophets is called the king, uh, the prince of peace, right? 
The significance of Abraham paying tithes to this priest, this Melchizedek, this Melchizedek, shows that Abraham acknowledged him as his spiritual superior. There was no record of Melchizedek's roots whatsoever. And this was most unusual, my friends. Why? For his import, it was important biblically for a priest to have a record of his genealogy. That was critical, according to Ezra and Nehemiah. And so if he had no such record of genealogy, he could not serve as a priest. Yet the Tanakh presents Melchizedek as a priest. And so the point is that Melchizedek stands as a type of eternal priest. Why was Melchizedek a greater priest then than the Levitical priests? Well, because he received a tenth of the spoils of battle from Abraham, Genesis 14, 20, but he was not specifically entitled to receive tithes from anyone. Only the Levitical priests were to receive a tenth of the income of the people. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, which means he must be greater than the priests of Israel, for they traced their roots from Abraham, the ancestor of Levi, the head of the priestly tribe under the Sinai Covenant. And number two, why was Melchizedek a, a greater priest than the Levitical order of priests? Because he, it's never witnessed or recorded here that Melchizedek died. The sons of Levi died as priests. And so this seems to add support to the belief of some that Melchizedek is no mere mortal. How many of you still are awake? I'm not going to be offended if you're not. The book of Hebrews deals extensively with this issue of Messiah's priesthood. But note the logic of Hebrews chapter 7 again. It says, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further was need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. This, my friends, open up, opens up a huge can of worms as we hear from various segments of the body of the Messiah who say, you see, Torah has been changed, the New King James, has been changed concerning the regulations concerning the priesthood governing the priesthood, and so then all the rest of Torah has been canceled. All the rest of Torah has been annulled. Don't you see this, Rabbi Joel? Why are you trying to keep it? Why are you Messianic Jews trying to keep it? And my response is this. Guys, I don't think I gave you this scripture. Matthew chapter 22. And look with me at verse 36. They ask him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Yeshua said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the Torah and the prophets. Only if these two commandments in the Torah are abolished, would the Torah be annulled? Would the Torah be canceled? As a point of information, by the way, back in that Hebrews passage, the word in verse 12 is not so much the word changed, 
But it's actually the Greek word metathesis is closer to the word transformed. And so what many of us have failed to realize is that the Torah was built in for transformations that would come about over history. I like what Messianic Jewish commentator Dr. David Stern says about this. He says this, quote, The term metathesis implies retention, listen to this, of the basic structure of Torah with some of its elements transformed. It does not imply abrogation or cancellation of either the Torah as a whole or of mitzvot or commandments not connected with the priesthood in the sacrificial system. And I agree with that statement, except that I believe that the priesthood and the uh, sacrificial system has not been canceled as well, has not been abrogated as well. The text of verse 12 there in that Hebrew 7 passage simply says that the regulations for the Aaronic priesthood did not have the power to change the nature of the lawbreakers. The context here is clear that the only transformation of Torah envisioned by the writers of the Messianic Jews concerns the priesthood and sacrificial system. What type of transformation? Well, think about it. For example, when Solomon built the temple, the tabernacle was thus no longer necessary, right? That's a transformation. Now, did that mean that the teaching on the tabernacle and Torah was abolished? No. But let's go further than that. We know that the priesthood of Aaron's line had to do with officiating in the temple. And so long as no temple stands, the priesthood, Torah tells us, it continues forever as a matter of legality, Exodus 40, 15, and Numbers 25, 13. In a sense, the priesthood has not been abrogated. It's not been annulled. The priesthood has not been canceled. It is in suspension Purely as regards its practice. Let me give you an example that will hit this home for you. In peacetime, the Secretary of War position in the U.S. President's cabinet is suspended. It's inactive. The temporary non-existence of the temple in Jerusalem makes exercise of the duties of the Aaronic priesthood temporarily impossible. But the priesthood Torah tells us itself continues is eternally assigned to their family and will never be assigned to anyone else. All right. And so the covenant of law, Sinai covenant, is connected to and mediated by the priesthood. And just as the Brit Chadashah, the new covenant, was not like the Sinai covenant, Jeremiah 31 said that, so the new priest is not like the Aaronic priest, but after the order of Malkitzedek, the king slash priest. So you see this new framework, a new covenant, a new priesthood. But the framework goes on. There was going to be a new order of sacrifice, a new sacrifice. Isaiah 53 says on your sheet, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was, what, wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
You see, whereas the Sinai covenant, as you read it, required what? Thousands and thousands of animal sacrifices. Guess what, folks? The new priest, the new offering, the new sacrifice. Messiah offered himself once for all. Not with the blood of goats and calves, the passage goes on to say, but what? With his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? A new covenant. In this framework, new priesthood, new sacrifice, and a new sanctuary. Hebrews 9 verse 11 says it like this on your sheet. But Messiah came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. Messiah's sanctuary is not earthly but heavenly. And so I've developed this chart for you to put it in this format. I think it's easier to understand some key differences, again, between the Sinai Covenant and the New Covenant based on that fourfold framework that I've described. We see here Sinai Covenant written on tablets of stone, right? New Covenant written on our hearts, 2 Corinthians 3.3. Clearly, you are an epistle of Messiah. You are a letter of Messiah ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart. Sinai Covenant focused on the letter of the law. The New Covenant focuses on the spirit of it, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The Sinai covenant focuses on externals, and I know this could be taken way out of, out of context here. I want to be careful on this one. The new covenant primarily on internals. Romans 2, 28 and 29 says, For he is not a Jew... Now, this is speaking about Jewish people, not Gentile converts to Judaism in this, in this letter. Who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. This is what we focus on. This is what we focus on. This is what we focus on. We're Jews because of the Abrahamic covenant, and we live that out in the new covenant as Jews focused on a circumcised heart. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. We have the priesthood of Aaron in the Sinai covenant. We talked about the priesthood of Messiah in the new covenant. Many ongoing animal sacrifices in the Sinai covenant. One perfect eternal sacrifice in the new covenant. Earthly sanctuary in the Sinai covenant. Heavenly sanctuary in the new covenant. Sinai covenant represented by the Mishkan, the tabernacle of Moses. New covenant, there's a tabernacle of David. In Acts 15, that passage Verse 16, during the days of David, we know that David sets up another tabernacle, which was very simple, very simple tabernacle, but it had the Ark of the Covenant in it. And that's the one quoted in the New Covenant passage here in Acts 15, that the Gentiles would be grafted into the tabernacle of David, the promise given to David that of his lineage, Messiah would come. They're grafted into that tabernacle, not the Sinai tabernacle. The Sinai Covenant represented exclusivity for Israel. The New Covenant for every tongue, tribe, and nation. 
Now, there's one other item related to this discussion of the relationship between the two covenants that I want to spend some time discussing with you this morning. It tends to be the most offensive allegory of justification by faith in Paul's writings and Shaul's writings and one which is so easily misunderstood by us as believers in Yeshua, both Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers. And so I want to unpack it this morning to kind of put a hammer on the nail so that we get this in our minds understanding. So let's talk about this allegory. Go with me to Galatians chapter 4. This is the allegory concerning Abraham's two sons, symbolic of two covenants. The passage illustrates the difference between those who trust Messiah for their righteousness and those who are relying on a legalistic observance of the Torah or any set of laws, for that matter, for their salvation. Maybe you've come from a congregation where that was the case. And Paul develops this parable based on the story here of Hagar and Sarah, of Ishmael and Isaac to illustrate his argument against what we could call these influencers in Galatia who were encouraging these Gentile believers in Galatia to undergo circumcision. Why do I do that every time I say circumcision? like a knife going through circumcision. I'm going to need to do, you know, circumcision <laughs> and become Jewish. Yeah, don't do the Atlanta chop thing, right? The, yeah, don't do that. Abraham's relationship to Hagar and the subsequent fruit of that bond, right, Ishmael, is compared to those, in Paul's allegory here, to those who put the Sinai covenant first before the Abrahamic covenant of promise. You see, Hagar came first before God's promise to Sarah. And through Hagar, Abraham and Sarah were attempting to secure the promises through their own efforts, right? Instead of relying on God's word and trusting in God's promises concerning Sarah. And so thus it is with those who try to earn their righteousness from God simply by trying to obey the Torah. This is so critical for us in Messianic Judaism as we relate to the other Judaisms as well in our city. Trust or faith, the Abrahamic covenant always must precede Obedience, the Sinai covenant. In addition, trust or faith, emunah, always results in obedience. You see the relationship. So let's look at it. Galatians 4, let's begin verse 21. Tell me, Shaul tells them, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Paul used the term here, quote, under the law, to refer to someone who has become halakhically Jewish through conversion. Again, some of these Gentile God-fearers here in Galatia were planning on undergoing ritual conversion to become Jewish. And Paul challenges them. He says, tell me, you people who want to become Jewish under the Torah, under the Sinai Covenant, don't you know what it says in the Sinai Covenant? He uses here the illustration of Abraham to prove his point. 
briefly and simply, Abraham had two sons, right? One son had been promised by God to Abraham through his wife, Sarah, but many years had passed, right, without her ever having a child. She seemed barren. She seemed incapable. Sarah becomes discouraged, so she sends, what, a slave girl, right, Hagar, to procreate with Abraham. Not good. Hagar subsequently then bears him a son, Ishmael. So some time goes by, however, but the fullness of God's promise occurred and the impossible happened, right? Sarah, not a young lady, well beyond childbearing years, bears a son and his name is Yitzchak, Isaac. And so we find that Ishmael was born into slavery, being born of the slave girl Hagar, born because of the work and the effort and the will of Sarah and Abraham, who feared that Adonai would not give them a child. How many of you have ever tried to take things into your own hands when you don't see God trying to come through at the time we think he needs to come through in our lives? Well, but Isaac was born through a supernatural miracle, born through promise, the Bible says, as a free man, born of a free woman, Sarah, born by the promise of Adonai alone, the promise that all nations will be blessed, all nations will be blessed in Abraham's seed, the Messiah. And so we have here Sarah, the woman of promise, and Hagar, the woman of slavery. What was the question on the minds of these Gentiles throughout the letter to the Galatians? How, Paul, do we get to become children of God? Hagar, who was Egyptian, had a son Ishmael, who was a Gentile. Like the Galatians were Gentiles. Ishmael, like these Gentiles here in Galatia, went and got circumcised. Like the Judaizers or the influencers in Galatia wanted them to do. So Ishmael and Isaac, they both get circumcised. Isaac had a covenant and Ishmael had a covenant. That's interesting when you look at world events today concerning the Arab, Arab brothers. But they're both sons of Abraham, right? They're both sons of the covenant, but did circumcision help Ishmael get the promise? No. You see, my friends, this is a perfect allegory to explain what Paul is trying to show them. Paul says that the best example we have is Ishmael, a Gentile who got the covenant, but he ends up remaining a slave. He ends up without the promise. Let's go on. Verse 24. Which things are symbolic? For these are two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. So the two mothers represent two covenants, right? And Paul says these things are an illustration, are an illustration of the truth that can be seen and drawn from the actual physical events. Hagar stands for Mount Sinai, the mountain Arabia where the Torah was given, the covenant of law, the Sinai covenant. She gives, quote, look at the words, she gives birth to bondage. Not because she's bad. Nowhere in the account in Genesis does God describe or denigrate Hagar. Therefore, by allegory, there's no reason to demean the Sinai covenant based on this passage, which it has been for a long time. The Sinai covenant, quote, gives birth to bondage because people pervert the Sinai covenant into a legalistic system. Sarah, on the other hand, 
is seen as a type of a covenant of the covenant of promise, the Abrahamic covenant, and equates to the spiritual and eternal city which God has promised to those who approach him by faith and corresponds to Jerusalem, verse 25, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Is in bondage to what? To sin. You see, Isaac, representing the Jewish people, got the promise and had a way of covering up his and their sin, right? Via the sacrificial system, ongoing, thousands every day, and not having to take on the curse. But Ishmael, representing the non-Jews, didn't have that available to them, so he and they wound up as slaves. My friends, the only way you get free from sin is through the promise. And the only way to get the promise is through faith. It's very simple. But the Jerusalem, verse 26, above is free, which is the mother of us all. You see, there is the Jerusalem above and the Jerusalem which now is. What do you think the present Jerusalem is? It's the way that Jews would see Gentiles in the world at that time. wasn't good. How did Jews look at Gentiles at that time? They looked at them as Ishmaelites. They were servants. They were the Shabbos goys. They were not sons or daughters. How did these influences or how did these Judaizers that were influencing look at the Gentiles there? They saw them likewise as slaves, as Ishmaelites as well. So the Jerusalem which now is, meaning present day Jerusalem at that time, saw these Gentiles like that. On the other hand, you have the Jerusalem above. What's that? That's where Messiah rules. That's where Messiah reigns. And that's the place of promise. So on the one hand, you have slavery. On the other side, you've got promise. And promise brings freedom. But Paul says, hey, if you want to become proselytes, you want to become Jews, go ahead, but you're becoming Ishmaelites. You're not going to get the promise. You can have the covenant. You can cut the foreskin. You can take on circumcision and you're a son of Abraham. Paul says, that's great, but you don't get the promise because that's not the way you get the fullness of the promise. That's just going to make you a slave as a proselyte to Judaism. And you're all, they're always going to see you as a slave. You see how important this is in Messianic Judaism? When I see non-Jews walk into a congregation like this looking more Jewish than the Jews, it reminds me of similar types of passages. What's the goal? What's the heart attitude? What's the truth? Who gets to be in the Jerusalem above? Everyone who believed the promise. If you want to go ahead and go through proselytization, then go ahead. But you're still going to be a converted Ishmaelite and you get the present Jerusalem. You don't get the promise. You're either one or the other. You want Isaac or you want Ishmael. You want Hagar or you want Sarah. You want slavery or you want freedom. Which one do you want? The choice is being made so clear for them here in this allegory. And I think the Lord is saying the same thing in our messianic movement today. For it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate 
has many more children than she who has a husband. And so to establish this allegory, this analogy, Paul quotes here a proof text back to Isaiah 54, which was actually a prophecy addressed to the city of Jerusalem, which is actually predicting the final messianic ingathering and redemption, the building of messianic Jerusalem, the return of New Jerusalem to the world, of the world to come. And in that passage in Isaiah, the prophet depicts ruined Jerusalem as a barren woman because her children have gone into exile. And at, but at the time of the at the time of the redemption, at the time of the ingathering, she realizes she has more children than she thought ever possible. The Jewish people return to her, and many Gentiles come as well. In other words, the covenant of promise ends up with more children than the covenant of law that was perverted into legalism. Now we, brethren, as Isaac, verse 28, was our children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. To Paul here, the God-fearing Gentile who remained a Gentile was a child of the promise that God made to Abraham. All nations will be blessed in your seed. On the other hand, the Gentile believers who underwent circumcision and went under the law to become Jewish, he likens here to Ishmael. They set aside the promise that Adonai made to Abraham about all nations being blessed in his seed. And Paul takes this analogy even further in verse 29. What, when, when did, quote, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecute him who was, quote, born according to the spirit, or Isaac? We see that spoken of early on in that passage in Genesis chapter 21. So who are these Gentile believers in Galatia being persecuted by? Folks, Everybody. The pagans were persecuting them. The Judaizers were persecuting them. Those who are born of the flesh persecute those who are born after the spirit. Ishmael ridiculed. Ishmael mocked. Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Paul draws upon that fact to show why you and I as believers are persecuted. Notice in verse 29 again, the words flesh and spirit. The Sinai covenant is associated with with flesh. The new covenant is associated with spirit. And this is critically important, my friends, to understand as we consider Yeshua's words that we quote all the time here, Matthew 5, 17, the, that Yeshua said, do not think that I have come to destroy the law and the, or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. If Yeshua did not come to abolish the Torah or the law, then how can both law and spirit, or can they both be operative at the same time? And the answer is yes, they can. Just as the Sinai covenant did not annul the Abrahamic covenant, we looked at that last time, session number one, so the new covenant does not nullify the law. In fact, it helps to establish it. Do we then make void the law through faith, Paul writes, Romans 3.31? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish law. And so the person in the flesh 
whether subconsciously or consciously, is trying, here's what they're doing. They're trying to secure recognition. They're trying to secure credit or esteem, acceptance to God, approval by God, praise from God, all by his or her own effort and energies. Therefore, they mock and they ridicule and they persecute true believers who say, what do we say? Self-effort, self-righteousness, they're not enough. They don't make a person acceptable to God. That's what we say. The person in the flesh refuses to acknowledge this fact. And we have multitudes of religions based on this system of their own energy, their own efforts, their own works, etc., trying to get to God. Finally, let's look at it, verse 30. They're, Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son... For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, <coughs> but of the free. So finally, Paul is saying here that legalism is to be cast out. Legalism has no inheritance with God. The son of Hagar shall not be heir with the son of Sarah. We read that Ishmael was cast out, right? Genesis 21.10, so that he would not share in the inheritance with Isaac. And Paul is making it super clear to these Galatian believers that, guys, gals, this is not the way for you. And in saying it in, the, in these words, man, this is offensive. This is super strong. One of the saddest things is that many interpreters and most commentaries see in this passage that the slave woman represents Judaism and say we need to get rid of Judaism. And that's become, this text has become the te proof text used by anti-Semites, neo-Nazis, etc. For the reason to get rid of Jews, which is crazy. Because the text has nothing to do with getting rid of Judaism or Jewish people. But it has to do with legalism and freeing oneself from its slavery. This whole allegory is about the fact that Gentiles are children of the free woman as long as they don't choose the slavery of proselytization and circumcision as the way in to be justified before God. But as Paul shows them in uh, chapter 3, I believe it is, the way for them to become adopted children is by receiving the promise through Messiah's faith and putting their faith in God. The Spirit of God then comes into them Bears witness, yes, they are indeed sons of the living God. And by the way, this will make a lot of friends in my Christian communities, but we can't become the offspring of Abraham by faith and become part of the commonwealth of Israel unless one relates to it. So the way you relate to Abraham, the way you relate to Israel, the way you relate to Jewish people is key because they're all one package. So when believers say they don't want to relate to Yeshua's Jewishness, why are you doing a Passover Seder? Just come to our Easter celebrate. Or the Jewish people, we don't want to relate to the Jewish people or Yeshua's Jewishness or any redemptive plan for Israel and so on. Do you see how Meshuggah that is? Do you see how crazy that really is? It doesn't make any sense. Even though the Galatian Gentile believers were not to become proselytes, they were still to live in that relationship to the Jewish people, to the Jewish world, to the Jewish Messiah, and even to Jewish culture. Live in a relationship to it. 
Hagar represents trying to work things out in the flesh. But Abraham, like us many times, he had to wait 14 years until Isaac was God's way of doing this. You know, my friends, it is human nature, is it not, to try to work things out, God's will, in our lives, in our flesh. How many of you know, I've tried, you cannot twist God's arm and make him do what you want him to do. God has his will for us. And it's our job to find out that will, and not only to find it out, but get in the center of that will. Final applications here. This is an analogy. This is a midrash. Paul's point, two different ways for a Gentile to enter Abraham's family. One's the normal way, according to the flesh, through circumcision and conversion, but that's Ishmael. The other way is a matter of faith in the promise that God is going to bless all nations in the seed of Abraham, the Messiah. Two concluding applications, because I think there's a couple of arguments that arise in Messianic Jewish congregations like this one over many years as a result of what I've shared to this point. Number one, quote, don't you want to be blessed? In other words, the argument here by that statement is that God gave the Torah to his people so that they would be blessed. Therefore, anyone who wants to be blessed should and needs to keep the Torah. The problem with that logic, my friends, is that Adonai gave the Torah, as I started this message, to the Jewish people. And the promises of blessing and cursing in Deuteronomy 28 through 30 relate specifically to Israel's covenant relationship with God. Now, while some non-Jewish believers in the Messianic congregations are, you know, they may be even a majority in many Messianic congregations like this one. They will experience, and you have experienced Adonai's blessing when you live out aspects of Jewish life, absolutely. This is a matter, hear my heart, this is a matter of your personal calling. And you should not think that everyone in the world is called to have that same experience. Paul writes to his mentee Timothy, quote, We know that the Torah is good Provided one uses it in the way the Torah itself intends. You see, the real issue is whether Adonai intends for all non-Jewish believers to be circumcised. To keep kosher. To observe the Sabbath on the seventh day. To celebrate all of Israel's festivals, etc. The Torah simply does not say this. Thus, the question should not be, don't you want to be blessed? But it should be, where is the Lord leading you to experience the blessings that God has uniquely prepared for you? The second argument is this. Summed up by the statement, we are one family. The argument here is that families don't have different traditions for natural born children and adopted children. Families share the same lifestyle, therefore non-Jewish believers should live out the same exact lifestyle as Jewish people since they've been adopted into the family of Abraham. But here's the fallacy, my friends. We find in the Hebrew scriptures through and through that the family of Israel, Abraham's family, is not monolithic in its practice. The firstborn in Israel had different, distinct family responsibilities than other children. Priests are called to a different Torahic lifestyle than non-priests in scriptures. Levites are called to a different lifestyle than non-Levites. 
And in the New Covenant Scriptures, Paul differentiates between the natural and the grafted in branches in the family of God with their different callings. If you're a natural branch, remain a natural branch. If you're a wild branch, get even wilder. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes the family of Adonai as one new man made up of Jews and Gentiles who remain Jews and who remain Gentiles. Equality does not mean sameness. We worship a God, how many of you know, who loves diversity and calls his children to different ways of life. April, if you come up, wouldn't it be crazy if Grace, I don't know if Grace is still here, I saw her earlier today. She's from China, I believe, Korea. Where where, where are you from? Taiwan. Taiwan. It would be crazy if you walked in here and I said to you, Grace, you need to stop being Taiwanese. (laughs) You've accepted the Messiah now. You can stop being Taiwanese. Or an African-American brother walk in. you got to stop being so black, man. Don't you know you've accepted the Messiah now? Come on. There is such a thing as male and female, free and slave. Well, maybe after the hearings, I'm not so sure this week. But biblically, there is such a thing as male and female. If you don't believe that, if Judge Jackson doesn't believe that, I can go outside, I can walk in, I can take a left, I can walk into that restroom there that says woman. And go directly to jail. That's what would happen to me. But there is such thing as Jews. There is such thing as Gentiles. There is such thing as men. There is such thing as women. And as I mentioned in the first part of this series, the pinnacle of our spirituality, hear my heart today, my friends, cannot be found in Torah observance, but in a life in the Spirit. That's why, listen, You will never find in the New Covenant Scriptures, you'll never find these words. Obey Torah, you won't find it. Follow Torah, you won't find it. Pursue Torah, you won't find it. Observe Torah, you won't find it in the New Covenant. It primarily uses Torah as a way to point forward to something even greater. Now, it doesn't mean we throw it out, right? We talked about that. But we remember, listen, you write this down because this is gold. We remember Torah as the base from which we launch not the stars for which we aim. This new framework, which we've seen today, shows that there is newness in the new covenant. The thrust of the teaching today is not that Torah has been contradicted in the new covenant. That's, I hope you're listening and you didn't get that impression. But that there are realities that we experience that did not exist before the Messiah Yeshua's resurrection. We could say write this one down. We could say this. A Torah life has been supplemented and elevated by a life lived in the Spirit. A life in the Spirit will cause us to uphold all the fundamentals of Torah, holiness, love, reverence, etc. But it also includes things that are not even matters of Torah observance, right? The gifts of the Spirit, which we're to eagerly pursue, not necessarily talked about in Torah so much. The glorification of Yeshua through spreading the gospel. The unity of Jew and Gentile. All these things are in the new covenant. We could say that the Messiah's first coming, his death, his resurrection, the sending of the Spirit brings Torah into focus 
in a way we didn't ever see it before without changing Torah's fundamentals. Well, how do I? I don't get it. You'll get this. Simple analogy. Paul had to bring a simple analogy. I'm going to bring you a final one. It's likened to the fact that we could say we have a new way of living in our living rooms because we purchased new furniture. You see, the basic structure of the living room is still the same, right? But the appearance of the room is now a little different. The sofa is now, oh, it's a new color. It's a new shape. We need to get a new one. But it's still a sofa. The Jewish people have been told, my friends, for so long that they're not to accept Yeshua because he's a different God. Although, how could he be a different God? We know there's only one God. We need to show our Jewish people that although there is a newness, the truth of Torah is still foundational to our faith. And that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still our God today. Stand with me today. You've got to dig deep to build high. I do not expect you to get this message until you listen to it a couple times because it took me a lot for the Lord to download it to me. And I wrestled, I wrestled with it. I put a lot of sweat, blood, and tears. And we got two more sessions. But it's foundational if we're going to move forward in a healthy messianic community where we've got Jews, where we've got Gentiles, where we've got Taiwanese, we've got African Americans, we've got Hispanics. Which is his panic, by the way. Hispanics are arising in the kingdom. They are his panic. The world's panic. Because they're getting turned on. Revivals are happening in Central and South America. They'll blow your mind. They're the devil's panic. Hispanic. We had a great time here Sunday night with our Hispanic brothers and sisters from one church. I know a lot of you couldn't make it. We're going to do it again soon. Because we are one in Yeshua. We are one in the olive tree. We have our assignments. And they're different assignments. In the words of Moses who told Aaron and his sons how to bless the children of Israel. He said this in scriptures. Receive this from the Lord. as his blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you today. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you peace. In the name of the Prince of all peace, all shalom, Yeshua of Nazareth, and all of us who are with him today said, Amen, v Amen. I encourage you to fellowship one with another. We'll have Kiddush in a minute out there in the lobby. Hebrew will not be today, but we'll be back next Shabbat. Again, those two that want to come to the Seder, uh, please register with April and get on the app. Shalom, everybody. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out, too. 
If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.